This week on the show, we sit down with John Taylor. John is the principal of UAE Southbank School in South East London. He shares with us his vision for his school and how his school have responded to the pandemic, how central a role they've played in their local community. John shares with us how the experiences he had as a kid have shaped his philosophy as a head teacher. And he shares with us how important a role schools play in tackling social injustices. Anyway, that's enough from me. Let's get into the conversation. So, John, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me. I was excited to have you on, um, reflecting back to when we first met at Fire in the Mountain yes. Festival. Yeah, near Aberystwyth, yeah, in red kite country. And it's absolutely beautiful, isn't it? And you really do see a lot of red kites there. So far away from North London. Yeah. But I guess that festival is all about community and... You know, celebrating life and you know, as, a, as a head teacher you are the steward of a whole uh, community it's and and you know the festival yeah the, that festival is i mean the reason i i go to it is my friend runs it and i uh, my friend uh joe bursky who set it up i was in a folk band with him for a few years doing a festival circuit which was great uh, but we we know each other through this thing we've always done, um, I've done since I was six, actually probably five, called Forest School Camps, which has a similar view on what society could be and I guess practicing that, rehearsing that, trialing different ways of being as a community, as you do, Max. And it's it's been such a, a driving force for me it's why I got into teaching in the first place it's my experience of going through that as a child but then also from the age of 18 as a as, as a staff I suppose camp counsellor kind of role with other children in for, for, the, for them fairly extreme environments in that quite extremely different from their home life um, but you know mountains in Wales and Scotland and so on nothing particularly dangerous um, but building building a community there and looking at the ways that we can behave and and having common experiences and and what that brings to you as an individual and then dropping into that the challenge element of it's it's just a challenging way to live it's a challenging place to to live in and how that changes you and my experience over time as a, a child and an adult working there really influenced my thoughts around what we should be doing with children and and what we could do with children through through the education system so then i you know decided a few years before I became a head teacher that I, that's what i wanted to do and i i had some fairly clear thoughts that over time uh that crystallized into how how I would want to realize these thoughts and these ideas if I could run my own school and then getting the chance to do that has been I mean it's, it's incredible it's such a privilege it's it's the most stressful and waiting <laughs> and constantly uh, challenging but also just feel I just feel so alive and thinking never never stop thinking how do we make this happen how do we get people on board how do we do something and create something that is 
it's getting anywhere close to giving the children that we look after the opportunities to experience a way of being and a way of being with each other that I would hope would give them the personal growth that I certainly feel I got through doing forest school camps. Yeah, do you, I really wish that more and more young people get to experience things like forest school camps growing up. Well, I think, I mean, and, and this this is the challenge, isn't it, for us as as head teachers? It's it's not possible. My only holiday every year, my parents, my dad in particular, was a bit of a hippie, so he's you know quite well educated, um, not particularly wealthy, but had a, a bit of an out there look on life and wanted us to do that. Um, my school. It's in Woolworth in Southwark, 750 children, mostly um, black African or black Caribbean heritage, 65% on pupil premium or something like that. You know, living in a, a very particular life, which isn't the opportunities for expanding your view on what life could be and having the experiences outside your flat and your school and your quite close geography are just very limited and there's no way that they could afford for their children to go and, and do that. So so how do we do that as a school? That's that's the big thing. And it's not it's not trying to replicate the experience of me going to forest school camps from Stoke on Trent to Wales for two weeks of the year. You know, there's there's an intellectual activity of what is it about that experience that led me to become the sort of person I am in the way that I think about society. And is that, is that firstly, do you want to replicate that? Do you want to give children a similar experience? Which bits do you think would be of value to them? Why would they be of value to them? And then how would you do that given the context that you're in? And that's not going to be a two-week summer camp that costs £400 per child. But what is, what is it about that camping experience? What is it about those experiences that, um, that really made the difference? That took a lot of self-reflection. What is it that I got from it? Why did I think it was so valuable? And obviously there's lifelong friendships and so on, but there's also a real sense of um, power, actually, um, as, a, as a child. When you're 14 and you know that it's raining really hard and you could light a fire and you could cook food and you could look after your stuff and you could look after yourself. That's really empowering and it makes you feel strong and capable and opens up your mind to, well, I could do anything. But then adding to that, the, the, the collective context, the fact that you can only, you can not only do that individually, but doing that within a, within a group, supporting the rest of the group and actually seeing how much more the, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts when you are lumped together in a really challenging situation looking after each other rather than just looking after yourself and the the camaraderie that comes from that the sense of joy um, the sense of being really feeling like you're part of each other and you're with each other and that's why the friendships become so strong um, you've been through it together even if the thing you've been through together is spending six hours digging a hole in the rain you know that, that, that stays with you and if, if that's what we're trying to do for our students how do we then recreate that sense and that understanding of what what life could be like working with other people being with other people in a in a an, an urban secondary school 
you know, largely deprived area has, has really informed what we're trying to do in school. We're trying to get the visionaries on board um, with our year 12s. We, we'll come back to why and what it is that's particular about that age group and particular about what the visionaries can do. But I think there's so much more that we try and do as a school. We've People like, you know, reductive words to hang things off. So we've come up with confidence, ambition, and social responsibility as, as the, the things that are at the core of our um, ethos and vision and what we're trying to do. These experiences tie into confidence clearly and obviously. But I think social responsibility is really the heart of this. Social responsibility for me is about you know, living, living in each other's lives and understanding from the experience of that, understanding how much more rewarding and pleasurable and powerful it is when we look out for each other. I'm just, I'm just going to keep waffling. I guess you can edit this down. <laughs> no, it's beautiful. It's great. <laughs> um, it's got me thinking a lot about how we grow up through life. We move more away from a me-oriented perspective towards the we and that group identity and group uh, responsibility, like you say. And, yeah, I would say one of the primary roles of a school of education is to help foster that way of being in the world. And it's, it, it's absolutely fundamental. You know, there is a tendency in all of us to self-segregate. There is a tendency in all of us to look out for ourselves and our family and to see the world as being almost a hostile place that we have to battle through. The, the children, I, you know, the school and the, the geography that we're in is so diverse. If we don't take seriously our responsibility as an institution to work against self-segregation, work against segregation, build community cohesion, get people to exist in the same space, being open, expressing themselves and from being with other people as they're expressing themselves as they want to understanding each other we we have a danger of the area that we're in just just going into its own silos and that is so unhealthy and you know this this has been recorded at the times of the black lives matter protest and what i've been incredibly heartened by is our school's response and the inclusiveness of that response so much going on um not just people going on a protest but what's happening in school what's happening with the students and the commitment from every member of staff that we all have a part to play and it's not just about saying well i'm not racist it's about you know what does this mean what can we do what are we saying to our students this is everybody's responsibility how are they taking that responsibility how are we showing them what that responsibility mm -hmm. should be it's been so powerful i think i've always said to my staff and I say to candidates when they come to get a job at our school um, and I think it's quite a bold thing to say actually I've always said that working here is a political act um, if, if you're working in my school you are committed to social justice you are committed to changing the lives of students and giving them something that they wouldn't get in another school and if you're not committed to that you really shouldn't be working here and the response to um, George Floyd's death has just given me such a sense of pride that, that there is a community there, um, students and teachers. Everyone 
has a voice and we expect people to take the opportunity to express their voice and we support them to do so. And I hope that they they get something out of this and they all get something out of this and I think they really will. So it's it's it's, it's lovely. It's kind of gosh, you can see you can see an ethos an ethos there actualized in, yeah. in his response. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm curious about how that relates to the the wider conversations that you know, COVID and mm. lockdown has inspired a lot of the education sector to you know, call for huge reform to what's kind of, to how we're doing schooling. There's, you know, there's a coalition manifesto coming out uh, led by head teachers from a lot of the leading state and private schools about uh, scrapping current GCSEs. And obviously with George Floyd's murder, the calls for decolonizing the curriculum so it's amazing to hear what you're doing within your school community. So as, as, a, as a school leader, we, we've been through a time where you, you, you realise, I, I, I saw a tweet that was really interesting and summed this up nicely. We, or I, people in leadership positions, not just in schools, but in other state institutions and non-state institutions. My, my wife runs a theatre and she's been through the same thought process, I suppose. But as public servants, we kind of expect or had this uh, nebulous thought that there was a a tower block full of really smart people who really knew what they were doing. And it was called the (laughs) government. (laughs) And uh, what this experience has drummed home to me is that doesn't exist. Actually, the government doesn't exist. You know, there is no one. There is no capacity to do anything. This happened and I and my senior leadership team, um, you know, we had to make decisions and the guidance that we did get would come late and so on. So, you know, you're watching the telly, you're watching the daily briefings and thinking, wow, okay, we're going to have to do this. And then where can we, where can we find some information about safety? Where can we find some information about transmittability of a virus and so on and then what action should we take how do we keep the parents informed how do we keep the students informed how do i talk to the staff and everyone's got their own personal risk assessment essentially based on the information they're hearing and all hearing different information so how do you keep more calm and get them to keep keep them trusting that as a school as an institution we're taking it forward but in terms of the actions that we're taking looking after the students the the government doesn't have anything to provide and cannot provide anything. There aren't the people there to do it. There aren't the the, the companies that they work with regularly that, that can provide things. It's, so everything that is promised just hasn't worked. So we've had to do it ourselves. And that is, um, it'll be interesting to see what the impact of that will be, because I'm sure other school leaders will have had the same experience. So, you now feel kind of, well, we've done this and we've done it fairly well, we think, and we've been in contact regularly. The kids are still learning online. They're doing all right. We're we're looking after them. We're keeping them safe. Uh, We're talking to the parents a lot. We're taking loads of feedback. We're keeping the engagement going. So we think we've done quite well. But there hasn't been anything from the DfE or Ofsted that has supported it. So when they come and say, oh, well, now we're going to judge you on this. It's a kind of a feeling of, I don't care. You know, who the hell are you? 
you weren't there. You weren't there. <laughs> so what, what do we think is important? And all of those decisions we've made have come from what do we think is important? What are we worried about? Where, where do we think the children are going to be lost? Where do we think the children are going to be stressed? What is it the parents are going to be worrying about? We've given out, for example, 170 Chromebooks. Um, we, we have our own food voucher scheme that we got running very quickly. Um, we were giving out food out of the back door, um, well, the side door of the, the school to anyone that wanted to come and pick up a lunch for a few weeks before. We were sure that everyone was on the food voucher scheme. Um, we've got six staff whose whole job is to phone up children and their parents that they feel might be vulnerable in some way. Um, you know, for example, the DFE gives us a list of who they think is vulnerable, which has, I don't know, 15 to 20 kids on it. And we've got a list of 120 and we're phoning them. So it's like we're, we're in that context. We know the kids, we know the parents, we know what we know. And we take all the actions and make all the decisions. And those actions and decisions are based on your own values as an individual and as a, as a, as a collective group of staff. Yeah. And it's those values that have got you through. So then after this, when we get through this, working to, to some arbitrary values that are imposed upon us, I, I, I don't think people will want to switch to that. So if you feel you know, education is compulsory to 18, so we should be doing everything we can to ensure that by the time they're 18, they have this body of knowledge, they have the power that comes from that knowledge, they have... Uh, experienced a variety of different ways that they could make their way in the world and we've helped them find a way that works for them. Um, they have got the, 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 the what they need for the next step and that might be a qualification but it might be other things. It might be a skill set, it might be a, um, a link, a connection. Then if that's what we value, then I can see why people are saying, well, I don't, that means I don't value GCSEs. And I don't value your league table. Yeah. It means nothing to me. And mm. you weren't there when we went with our values and we did all right. And so let's just keep doing that. So I think there's, it is a time when people are having so, those thoughts. So therefore, therefore, it will be a time when people coalesce uh, around ideas for fairly dramatic change. I, unfortunately, the, the danger is going to be, of course, that people will slip back into the routines because this is difficult and it's not sustainable forever. You know, and it's, it's, it's people don't want to, you know, teachers do not want to be sat at home um, teaching through Google Meet children that are also at home watching through Google Meet. And that's, you know, that's not, that's not what they signed up to do. They don't want to be marking work online. Um, for four hours a day. They want to be walking into a room full of people and, and bouncing mm. off that. And that's teaching is a very live, it's an incredibly interactive, it's a it's a very high-paced, uh, buzzing experience, and you're you have a skill set of it takes a long time to get good at it. Um, and everyone's rubbish when they start. I was so bad. So bad. <laughs> and so many things that become, it's a bit like driving a car, you know, you don't think about changing gear, you don't think about clutch pedal. It's like that when you're yeah. teaching, you know, and, and, and when you're working with new teachers, people who are new to teaching, that you, 
you realize there's a thousand things that are subconscious to you as an experienced teacher. But that that energy and that vibrancy that you get from being in a room with 20 young people, 25 young people, 15 of who might not want to be there or aren't interested, all the baggies they're bringing yeah. and making that an experience and doing that four or five hours a day. I mean, it's incredibly tiring, but it's so alive. Um, and this this is not alive in anything like the same way. So it's not a it's not a sustainable model. Um, but it's yeah, it's we've we've had to we've had to make decisions mm. based on our values and and going back to basing it on someone else, some politician's values or whatever someone else's values imposed upon us, that's going to be an interesting transition. A real opportunity of like decentralization of the education system and what that may bring in the future. And I wonder what, what it will take going forward in terms of leadership for you to continue doing what you're doing. Just even a few weeks ago, being on the phone to some of your staff and knowing that you're providing the students with the technology that they needed um, is really forward-thinking and extraordinary, especially I read a, a, a report today about um, socioeconomically deprived students and how they're really um, negatively affected mm. from COVID situation. And you're just so on it. Um, and that is so much due down to like your heart-led values of the organisation. And that must actually give them the empowerment that they need and the confidence and continued ambition. So what I wonder for you, like what you think it would take to keep kind of trusting your school values when you go back. That's always been the trick, you know. I, I've got to get the results to the point that means that we have the freedom to do it the way we want to do it. Um, and I've got to do it within a balanced budget. Um, and that's always been the, the, the difficult thing. The values are... Um, you know, they're not particularly different to the values a lot of people have. Um, everyone's values are informed by their own experience, aren't they? I have my own experience, I just try and understand it and then decode that or encode it into a set of values. Um, anyone can have the values, but there is oversight. You know, we take public money, we're paid by the taxpayer. Um, our children need to be at the age of 25 in a situation where they can provide for themselves and their family in the world as it exists now. Um, we can influence the students and hope that we influence the students with our values and the experiences we give them to, to support them in doing that, but we can't stop people from asking for exam results when they decide whether they want to interview someone or not. We can't stop universities from asking for exam results when they decide who should go into their course. But there is still has to be, of course, there has to be accountability and oversight. You cannot, you cannot just trust that um, because I've got this job, I, um, you can just let me go and do it however I wanted to. Because if you did that, there will be there will be schools where kids are unemployable, and that is that is not helpful. The children might have had a lovely time and then be incredibly poor for a long time. Um, so there has to be oversight. Now, that oversight will, I don't, exa examinations will continue, um, but 
the argument around whether they should be there at 16 or 18, that's that's been an argument that's been going on for a long time. Um, and this might be a catalyst to open that debate up again and see if we can have some change there. Hmm. And it's about rebalancing, isn't it? It's not saying we have to completely... Obviously, a lot of people would like to completely scrap exams and finding ways to highlight what someone's um, journey through education has been. Um, but I think that civic participation piece and the, the involvement in social responsibility and being part of a community and feeling like you have a role to contribute and be of purpose uh, to your local um, environment and your local community. And that for me feels like, you know, we've in this time we've given people... Well, people have had a really visceral experience of what it means to be part of a community or or in case it not not be part of a community and the value or you know and what it is they value within that i was curious to ask what you feel the school's role is um in the local community and perhaps more widely as we start to emerge back into some sort of uh, routine Early on, it became clear that for many people, it felt to us from our interactions with them on the phone, the parents of the children we look after, for example, or mostly actually, um, it felt like we were the state, really. That, that was it. We were the only people that knew them, knew where they were, asked them what they needed, and then did something to try and for that need um, whether we could do that ourselves or put them in touch with someone who could but it very much felt like we, we go into isolation and then there's this building which actually doesn't have many people in it at all it has a few people in it but that building holds a lot of expertise and they know me they know my family um, so we would be the ones that would talk to people about hunger or social work related you know, things that needed referrals to social workers um, and the social care system. Um, see, I don't know if people defaulted to asking the school for help because there was no one else to help or whether, because I, I only experienced it from the point of view of the people who did that. Maybe maybe other people mm -hmm. were asking the doctor um, or some other state entity. Um, but it certainly felt like we were fundamental and for many people, we were the place that that they had a relationship that would then help them sort their stuff out to make things bearable and deal with whatever the stress was that they were they were feeling. And that makes that's that's really um, that's a hell of a responsibility to have. And I'm constantly thinking about who's fallen through the gaps. You know, I, I found out two weeks ago that somebody hadn't been able to get online and do any work for eight weeks, one of our students, and I was just so annoyed. And what had happened is her name is um, almost exactly the same and very unusual as the name of somebody that we knew was having problems and we were having loads of conversations with back and forth. So she had slipped through the gap because she'd been mistaken you know, the one email we got from there had been mistaken as being someone else. Um, but you're constantly looking for who is it who's slipping through the gap? Who is it who's suffering in isolation? How do we get how do we get hold of them? And I think that's something that this this is where this is where the public sector does really well, but the private sector does really badly, 
it's not, you know, if it was a private sector organisation, you'd say, here's the helpline and, and, and sit there and wait to see if anyone called it. As, as a school, as a public sector, mm. it's like, okay, here's the helpline. Right, well, there are, there are 85 people that we know of that should have called that helpline. Right, you, you, keep find, you keep looking until you get those people. Keep going until you find them. Yeah. And like the vouchers thing, um, all the government can do is say, sign up for this. What we do as a school is say, hang on, there's three people here, there's three families here that don't seem to be signed up and we know they're hungry. So we go and get them and, and that involves a lot of work, hours and hours of work because they're hard to reach. Mm-hmm. And that's... Um, that that's what you have to do, and that's nothing that that can never be outsourced. No, it shows that schools so much more than uh, just the, what happens in the classrooms. Well, it's a very deep duty of care, and I mean, I've only been in your school a few times, but every time I've been in there, that's the the feeling I've got just witnessing how teachers engage with the students. And I think a lot of the time in other schools and systems, that gets overlooked. It's worth celebrating that that's that's what you really put first. I'm glad I'm glad you get that feeling. But you know, care care involves making them clever. That's that is really important, and let's not overlook that. That's absolutely what we're there to do. We we need to make them clever because being clever is is the best thing. If you need to help yourself to do to to get yourself a, a good life, the good life. Um, I mean, the school is strict as well, Nikki. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, it actually sounds like when you, I mean, maybe I'm just making an assumption here, so you can correct me if I'm wrong, but from the sense of what I get in hearing you and just witnessing you speak is that clever means way more than just kind of knowing loads of information for exams. It's smart in, in like a whole way as a person. No, absolutely. Absolutely. It is, it is in a whole way as a person, but um, the knowledge, the content knowledge is is fundamental to that and I'm not in the the sort of it's all about skills it's all about experiences it's all about creativity camp it's it's creativity is 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 how you can use knowledge in new ways you can't be creative if you don't know nothing you know I I've seen people uh teachers say oh like creativity is what I'm trying to do so I'm getting them to design a robot and the, the kids have drawn pictures of robots. It's like, well, they can't. That's not a design. They can't make it. It doesn't do anything. It's just, it, that's not creative. Creativity with a robot is building a robot, building a few robots, knowing how to build a robot, and then working out a way to do it slightly differently so it could do something differently. Now, to do that, you need some pretty good quality maths. You need some proper material science. You need to, to really know how to use some engineering mater- uh, machines. That's creativity. So you've got to have the knowledge before you can be creative. Um, and that, you know, you see that in music, you see that in all fields of the creative arts as well. Stormzy didn't just start from scratch and put down a track first time that was amazing. He's listened to a lot. He's worked a lot on how to use the software. He knows a lot about beats. Mm. He can probably, I imagine, be excellent on the drums um, and play live music and so on. The, the creativity comes from having a significant amount of knowledge and then being able to apply it in an innovative way. So the knowledge is fundamental to that. Um, and it really is important and it is, it is at the heart of what we do. However, for you to get actualization, 
you know, you've got that knowledge and then you have to be able to express yourself. You have to have express yourself in a way that your voice is heard. You have to be able to convince others of your argument. You have to see ways in which you can be of use and see the value in and the, and the responsibility for you as a human to be of use. Um, to, so having the knowledge is the first step, but then there is so much more, as you say, Nikki, than just having the knowledge that makes you a good person and gives you a good life. And we absolutely focus on those things as well. I think there's also something about being critical of that knowledge because yeah. you know there's a lot of things that I was I remember being taught in school that I you know perhaps at that age absorbed mm. as a, absolute and objective and we we bought we're born into a, a society that promotes certain ways of living um, and actually you know, behind the screen metaphorically speaking and quite literally in this case there's stories of civil war and uh, you know, child slavery and re- really like horrific ways of existing that we you know, we often don't know about. Absolutely, we we have a decolonizing the curriculum group that we started um, about six months ago, I think, of students, um, which is looking at just that. Who you know, who says this is the knowledge? Um, what is the knowledge that we feel you know? tells us the right stories and gives us the right lessons and history is a subject where you can look at that so broadly but also any subject um it's something we ask of our teachers Mm -hmm. um you know that we design our own curriculum and and sometimes often in fact that design that design involves the students as well um and being critical, yeah, absolutely. That's so important. Um, completely, completely agree with you. Um, but you can't, you know, you, you can't critique something just by saying, "Oh, I don't agree with you." Where, where's your backup, mate? <laughs> you know, what have you got then? What are you bringing yeah. to this argument? Um, so you've got to have something to bring to the argument. You've got to have an experience of the structures of argument, um, of the, the philosophies of cognitive dissonance. You know, the, the, these things are important and. Uh, and we teach them, and that that is worth teaching. Um, like we have a we have a, a normalcy program, so we teach our children how. It sounds stupid. We teach our children how to speak, um, but what we're talking about is how to speak to an audience to in different ways to different audiences in different contexts that mean that you are heard, you are listened to, and therefore you can affect your life. There's no there's no point doing that if you haven't got anything to say. So you've got. To have, <laughs> something that you're bringing to say as well um so yeah it's all interlinked i think i read i don't know if you've read martin robinson's book trivium 21c it's, it's quite an interesting book it's a it's a teacher's book essentially there's no reason why you would have read it <laughs> um but it it looks at the greek trivium of knowledge and learning and how that can be um related to what we do in schools today and it's it's really quite powerful and thinking quite broadly and quite openly around what it is that we're actually doing and it is that combination of um the the knowledge base and the oratory the the expression and the the argument and it's it's it's, it's the interplay between those things those three things Sounds good. We'll, we'll put it in the show notes for people listening. On the topic of books, something we're asking uh, everyone who comes onto the show is, what's the book 
or books that you've come back to most throughout your life? I don't know if I have um, an answer to that. Um, I mean, I'll, I'll kick myself when I go to sleep tonight because I'll think, oh God, why didn't you mention this? Or why didn't you mention <laughs> You know, you've got stories that inspire you. Like uh, one, I remember as a child um, watching a TV series called The Last Place on Earth, I think, and it was about um, Scott and Amundsen and their, the, the lead up and then their uh, expeditions trying to get to the South Pole first. But it, it went through the history of polar exploration and Nansen and Shackleton and uh, Amundsen and Scott. I thought I was really interested and really just got really into it and into polar exploration. And I think that was about um, the, the mindset to deal with incredibly challenging situations and, and so on. But it was also about the personalities of the individuals and how they were with the the men in their command would be the right way of saying it because this was what 19th century i suppose well very early 20th century 90 late 19th early 20th so it was men and it was a command structure um but the 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 different ways that yeah it just stayed with me in many different ways um i thought it's it's, it's pretty boring and very (laughs) odd that that would be the thing that i thought of uh, it's funny, I think South by Shackleton is a book I, I haven't yeah. reread it because it's quite a um, dark book to read but it definitely left an imprint on me growing up I mean that journey yeah. that was something else wasn't it I mean the... surviving on whale blubber for months on end you know <laughs> and also actually making it to South Georgia in that boat and, and, and nailing it nailing the navigation in that sea for all those weeks yeah. just incredible I mean, a stunning story. Yeah, yeah, really. yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, given we, 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 mm. I guess our common place is that we, we care a lot about young people and teenagers and where they're at. I'm really curious to know if you had uh, some advice to say to your teenage self, what would that be and and I, I get that comes from when I was listening to you kind of make the case about the importance of of why we show up to school I was really sold on like if I, I was thinking if I, I would have been a teenager and you'd be my teacher because I was a very disengaged student at school uh, I would have shown up to school hearing like the case you made so I'd love to know if you go back to your teenage self what you know now what, what would you what piece of advice or knowledge would you mm-hmm. give good and Bennett I mean like there, there'll be a lot of it um, <laughs> you know I yeah I I didn't have um, I didn't have the childhood I'm trying to give to my children um, in many ways and I think um what would I say to myself? I'd probably say you're okay. You're okay. And um, the world's not actually out to get you. You can stop fighting. Um, other people, you know, your behavior has an impact on other people more than you think it does. And um, Kindness and defensiveness and uh, things that 
things that kids boys uh that grew up and ended up like me yeah there's there's, there's some there were some tough messages that i would have not necessarily tough messages actually quite nice messages that i would give to myself to myself going back yeah um but i was definitely um fighting the world uh and that that was necessary at the time but it would have been nice to know that that, that wasn't the way it had to end up and it's okay Beautiful. Nice point to end on. John, thanks for joining us. I've really enjoyed hearing your stories of how you're stewarding your and uh, the school community. Well, thank you for listening. I'm sorry I just ramble on. I mean, there's a danger in each other. It's great. It's really <laughs> been a pleasure. And thanks for your time on your birthday as well. Happy birthday. Yeah. You're welcome. I'm going to have a nice birthday too now. Awesome. Well, we'll speak soon anyway. See you later. Thanks so much for tuning in today. Watch out for our up and coming episodes. In the meantime, if you're interested in the work that Max and I do with The Visionaries, check out our website on www.thevisionaries.org.uk. Take care of yourselves.